You can call it anarchism if you want. You can call it freedom and liberty if you want. You can call it a genuine cooperative spirit amongst Earth's proud population if you want. It's necessary. You can't help it. As long as the world is divided up into 150 separate regions, each one of which thinks, each one of which thinks it's God, and that its national security comes first and everything else second, we're all going to die. So we've got to get away with it. I don't like having a world government. I don't like any government. They all charge me taxes. I hate it. <laughs> but there's no way out. You've got to... You, the, look, I get letters from people saying yours for less government. What they really mean is yours for less centralized government. If Washington abdicates and there's less government at the center, it means that the local bully boy on the block is the government. And I would rather have it in Washington. The local bully boy knows where to find me. <laughs> so there's the future I foresee as a possible one. Energy from space, space fully exploited, a nice computerized automated civilization, women's lib. Also, which I haven't discussed in this particular speech, but for very good reasons, revolutions in education, an automatic end to racism because the earth cannot, con cannot continue under an appropriate civilization as long as some people feel rightly that they are discriminated against. And this is going to be a sort of peaceful world, a sort of world as I see it, which has accomplished its aims, and they're liable to be bored to death. I mean, having saved them from all the different kinds of deaths through overpopulation, through energy starvation, through pollution, through internal violence and terrorism, through all this, you end up with everyone just yawning themselves to death. Because after all, through all of history, through all of history, Men have been used, human beings have been used to living with risk and danger, etc., etc. Well, they'll still exist up there. And in the end, find new place where for a period of time population can expand, where you can be a pioneer, where you can take your risks. It may be that the space settlers will be the cutting edge of human exploration, that it is they who will explore the outer solar system. It is they who will build and take part in these great starships that may someday leave the solar system forever on their slow way towards distant stars. It is through them that we may fall heir to the universe. It is through them that we will finally outgrow the infancy of the human race, stuck as it is to the cradle of the earth. And through them, we will finally become adults and expand and spread out into our proper home, which is nothing less than, than the entire universe. And if out there we find other creatures intelligent enough to be expanding on their own, then I suggest we will by that time discover that there is such a thing as a siblinghood of intelligence. Any intelligent species that has reached the point where it can expand beyond its own planetary system must have defeated those, or maybe never had them, those vile instincts which led them to fight with each other. Because if we can't defeat them, we'll never get out into space. We'll all die right here on Earth. If we get out into space, it's because we have learned 
how to do something better than to destroy our brother and sister. And if we do, they do too. And when we meet, it will be on an entirely new basis of humanity in a general sense, not referring to the human species alone. After all, the vast evolution of the universe from the very beginning of its existence as a cosmic egg or as a thin scattering of dust and gas has been to increase the complexity of its parts until some of it has grown sufficiently complex to have a brain sufficiently elevated to be able to look at the universe and wonder what it is and what it's like and how best to cooperate with it to expand. It is different parts of the universe becoming aware of itself. And it doesn't matter what the outward shape of the self-awareness is, only its function, that of self-awareness. And when we can join the brotherhood of intelligence at last, we will know that the human species is finally adult. Thank you very much. Earth 2019 Dominant Species Human Galactic Potential Rating Zero Cultural Affiliation Combination of Government and Global Businesses Corporatism Legacy Institution Species Still Conservative Superstitious and Religious Ecologically Illiterate Largely Unaware of Cosmological Foundation of Love Level of technological dependence is disturbingly higher than the galactic standard. Species distracted and behavior controlled by technology companies. System error. Advanced concepts detected beyond normal human levels. New galactic potential rating, over 9000. Transmission type, podcast. Host, The Man of Tomorrow. Brian Sovereign. Source, Sovereign Tech. The best in the world is here for you, baby. It is the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, the thriller that is Savzilla. Ready to take it on again this week. This is part of your triple load. If you have joined Zomia One, the Zomia One Underground, that's at Zomia1.com. You actually got three episodes this week. All kinds of action. Of course, there's a lot more coming out, uh, but we've got a lot to get into in this episode. Uh, we'll see what we can get talked in because there's so much news. And I'll tell you, on Zomia One, which is an entire podcast network, can you get enough of that? No, I didn't think so. Woo, because I've gotten your emails and you've told me. You're so excited that there is more shows that not just featuring the Golden Stallion, but that are Golden Stallion approved. You know, that the man of tomorrow is all about. And I'm so honored uh, that you trust me that much. And I'm so honored that you want to hear my voice some more because I'll tell you, 
I can't handle hearing my voice that much, but okay. So why don't we go ahead and just break into, okay, our, well, we, we have our lead story here. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I could talk about kind of in the get-go here, because I'll tell you, for the Golden Stallion, life has been a little nuts <laughs> as late, but you know, we'll, we'll save that perhaps uh, for another time, but don't you worry. The Golden Stallion is rocking and rolling, doing it <laughs> like you wouldn't believe having the time of his life. But, uh, well, anyway, you know, we're going to open up the show this week with something. I mean, this is something we've talked about a few times. We like to talk about space on sovereign tech because it's not just about tech here. It's also about science and well, the subject of, uh, aliens has come up quite often now. I know. Okay. A lot of people, a lot of my listeners give actually, you get really pissed off when I talk about aliens. Why? Not because I think they're, they've been to earth or because uh, I think they're out there, but because I don't think those things, it seems like everybody gets a little hot and bothered that. I don't think aliens have ever been to earth that I think UFOs are just, you know, government X planes more or less. Uh, and that, well, again, I think that, that sapient life, not sentient life. Okay. Not just like animal life, but sapient knowledgeable, conscious life that can act outside of instinct, I think is incredibly rare in the universe. Well, that leads to the Fermi paradox, which we've talked about many times on this show. And this past week, Forbes, uh, actually did an article where apparently in Paris, just about every year, there is a organization called Medi, not SETI, uh, but Medi that gathers together top minds and some of which are very respectable uh, to have a conversation around what are we doing about finding aliens? What do we do if we do find aliens, uh, you know, out in the, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence, perhaps we should say, uh, or, you know, just why isn't it happening if we're not? And Forbes did an article on this, and I want to talk about it because it gets into a lot of very, Let's just say I'm concerned <laughs> around what they had to say. In fact, I almost opened up this episode with, uh, with a classic song, uh, the zoo by scorpions. I almost opened up with that because this year's uh, little Medi conference has to do with the concept of whether or not we are in, uh, or it has to do with the zoo hypothesis, whether or not we're in some kind of galactic zoo. In fact, there's a point, we're going to read a little bit of the article here, and there's a point where they bring up a hypothesis, uh, that not to say I would have never thought of it, but that I never really heard discussed so openly, which is, I mean, it's related to the zoo hypothesis, but it's called galactic quarantine. I know all of this sounds really nuts. Even Forbes admits that, but this is these, you know, scientists from their various fields are serious. And this is th these questions or exploring these questions for them is serious as a heart attack. And so I think it's worthwhile to have a bit of a discussion around it. Uh, of course, a discussion coming from someone who, well, quite frankly, is an anarchist and uh, may have a different bit of a, and an atheist and doesn't, it might have a different perspective than what, what, uh, what some of these scientists and, and other top minds, quote unquote, top minds, I put that in quotes, uh, do at this Medi conference. So here's uh, the, the headline from Forbes. Are we in a galactic zoo protected by aliens. Now, that last part's pretty important. Protected by aliens. Scientists meet to investigate the great silence. Now, the great silence is basically another phrase for the Fermi paradox, which is the Fermi paradox. I don't think I, I mentioned earlier what it was. In case you don't know, the Fermi paradox is the concept by an Italian uh, scientist that, okay, according to the Drake equation, there are, you know, there must be just tons and tons of, of alien life 
out in the galaxy and in the universe. I mean, there must be billions of habitable planets, blah, blah, blah. And if that's so, why aren't we seeing any evidence of them whatsoever? Okay, not just radio waves, but why aren't we seeing any evidence of these things? And it's a great question. And of course, my answer to the Fermi paradox is firmly, no pun intended, (laughs) is is firmly uh, that it's because it's very rare. And so you wouldn't necessarily see signs of it because of its rarity, because of how disparate, how uh, spread out it actually is. So anyway, but let's see what they have to say at Medi, at at the little Medi conference here about the great silence. Here we go. Here's the story. Are we alone? Probably not. After all, astronomers have already found 4,001 confirmed exoplanets in our Milky Way galaxy and expect there to be over 50 billion exoplanets out there. For scientists gathering in Paris today, and this is this is from March like 17th, 2019, this is very fresh. For scientists gathering in Paris today, the question is different. Why haven't we made contact with alien civilizations? Now, Stallion breaking in, as I've brought up many times, that exoplanet list of confirmed exoplanets, that actually, planets get removed from that as much as they get added. So don't get too excited about that number, but we'll keep going. Um, So here's a subheader. What is the Fermi paradox and the great silence? Well, I don't know that I necessarily have to read that because I've already covered that part. So we'll, we'll skip ahead here. Quote, we are very interested in the scientific approach used in the analysis of the Fermi paradox and the search for intelligent life in the universe, said Cyril Birnbaum and Bridget David at the, um, there's no way I'm going to pronounce this right, at the City de Science et de Industrie, L Industrie, that's obviously French, uh, Cide, we'll just call it the Cide, uh, the Science Museum in Paris that's hosting today's meeting. Quote, the question, are we alone, affects us all because it is directly related to humanity and our place in the Cosmos, end quote. What are scientists doing in Paris is the next subheader. Today, leading researchers from the fields of astrophysics, biology, sociology, psychology, and history are meeting at the Cité. Notice nobody from like parapsychology or anything are there, which... Great. Uh, but uh, Every two years, Medi International, which Medi stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, organizes a one-day workshop in Paris as part of a series of workshops entitled What is Life? An Extraterrestrial Perspective, said Florence Roland Cerceau, uh, co-chair of the workshop and a member of Medi's board of directors. The scientists are discussing some pretty insane-sounding questions. That's Forbes saying that, by the way, standing breaking in, reading on. Are extraterrestrials staying silent out of concern for how contact would impact humanity. Hmm. Uh, Do we live in a galactic zoo? Should we send intentional radio messages to nearby stars to signal humanity's interest in joining the galactic club? Will extraterrestrial intelligence be similar to human intelligence? Did life get to Earth from elsewhere in the galaxy? Interstellar migration. Quote, or maybe panspermia. You know, I mean, that's not an unscientific uh, concept by any means. Of course, panspermia can happen on different levels, right? It could be microbes or who knows what. Uh, anyway, quote, this puzzle of why we haven't detected extraterrestrial life has been discussed often, but in this workshop's unique focus, many of the talks tackled a controversial explanation first suggested in the 1970s called the zoo hypothesis, end quote, said Raulin Cerceau. Ah, yes, the idea that we're being watched by aliens and perhaps even being protected by them. 
So now what is the zoo hypothesis? That's the subheader. This is a mind warping idea that there are alien civilizations out there that know all about us, but purposefully hide from us. It certainly explains the great silence quote, perhaps extraterrestrials are watching humans on earth, much like we watch animals in a zoo End quote explains Douglas Vakok, president of Medi. Quote, how can we get the galactic zookeepers to reveal themselves? End quote. At a workshop, Vekok proposed the humans should be more active in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Quote, if we went to a zoo and suddenly a zebra turned toward us, looked us in the eye, and started pounding out a series of prime numbers with its hoof, that would establish a radically different relationship between us and the zebra, and we would feel compelled to respond. End quote, he said. Uh, that kind of reminds me of, uh, Rothbard's old classic thing of when do we give animals rights? You know, Murray Rothbard, uh, the classic idea of when do we give animals rights? He says, when they ask for them, that's kind of the concept that they're going for here. Uh, I don't exactly agree with Rothbard, but regardless, we'll continue. Um, it's hard to disagree with that quote. We can do the same with extraterrestrials by transmitting powerful, intentional information, rich radio signals to nearby radio stars End quote, he said, uh, yeah, right. Nearby stars. Uh, he said, Going on, what is the galactic quarantine theory? Now, Stanley breaking in, this is where it gets interesting. The zoo hypothesis, whatever. I mean, it, it smacks of a galactic version of, uh, you know, Captain Pike in Star Trek in the, the original episode, The Cage. Uh, which, by the way, boy, whew, if you haven't been watching season two of Discovery, you got to listen to another show on, on Zomia One, that being Sovereign Trek, which I host and uh, have guests uh, hosts on as well. And, uh, boy, we've been breaking that down. and Because Pike's journey, that's been a hell of a thing, including... Well, I don't want to give anything away, but let's just say the cage has has bearing. But let's move on. Star Trek, very fitting for a lot of this, because I'm sure it inspired a lot of people to even ask these questions that are in this Forbes article. But let's get to the next subheader where things get particularly interesting and troublesome, in my opinion. What is the galactic quarantine theory? So this is different from this is based off of the zoo hypothesis, but slightly different. Think the zoo hypothesis theory is insane or theory is insane. That's nothing compared to another theory about alien benevolence. Quote, it seems likely that extraterrestrials are imposing a galactic quarantine because they realize it would be culturally disruptive for us to learn about them. End quote, said Jean-Pierre Rospar, uh, the honorary research director at the Institut National, I'm not going to pronounce it right, and co-chair of the workshop. Uh, so obviously a guy that has a lot of skin in the game and who is, uh, shall we say, a muckety-muck at this conference in Paris. Uh, quote, cognitive evolution on Earth shows random features while also following predictable paths. We can expect the repeated independent emergence of intelligent species in the universe, and we should expect to see more or less similar forms of intelligence everywhere under favorable conditions. Uh, he added, there's no reason to think that humans have reached the highest cognitive level possible. Higher levels might evolve on Earth in the future and already be reached elsewhere. Okay. This paragraph in particular is something that I really, really, really want to tear into, but I want to read the rest of it. And then we're going to go back to this paragraph because there's a lot there that I want to talk about. And is some of the more intriguing stuff involved. Um, now the next bit that they go into is the Drake equation, which I already explained exactly what that was. You can uh, look it up and link is in the show notes if you want to read more specifically about it. But anyway, let's continue. Uh, here's the subheader radio astronomy versus interstellar colonization. While for now, radio astronomy is the only practical way of humans sending messages out into the cosmos, says one scientist, only full blown colonizations of other stars. Colonization of other stars is the only way to prove the existence of intelligent life. Quote, it appears that although radio communications provide a natural means for searching for extraterrestrial intelligence for civilizations younger than a few millennia, 
older civilizations should rather develop extensive programs of interstellar colonization, end quote, said Nicholas Prantos, director of research of the Center National de la, I'm not going to get that right either, CNRS. In advance of Monday's meeting, quote, this is the only way to achieve indisputable evidence, either for or against the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence within uh, within their lifetime. Now, that gets into an interesting point, like, OK, you know, SETI can send out its message or, you know, can be looking and listening for signs of uh, of E.T., of extraterrestrial intelligence. Right. But, of course, that can only map or keep an eye on a very small portion of the entire universe. And basically, they're, you know, older civilizations. These things could maybe be long gone or whatever could be going on. But bottom line, to really know whether or not there are any you know, other civilizations, interstellar civilizations out there, you're going to have to land on some other planets and take a good look. Okay. And this is what some people claim. And I'm not saying I agree with them, but like, you know, your Richard Hoagland's, your Mike Barra's, some of these other more controversial to, or very controversial types who would say, oh, there's a, you know, like the face on Mars or there's cities on Mars or there's uh, glass buildings on the moon or something like this, like things we've talked about on the user podcast, which is also part of Zomia one, uh, if you're in the Zomia one underground. So yeah, I get that. Like that, that's not an unfair thing to say, but let's continue on. Here's the last subheader, uh, and this is why aliens could be very different from humans. So this is responding to the earlier comments during the quarantine theory. Why should they even be or why should they be even remotely similar? Quote, the environment on an exoplanet will impose its own rules. And quote, said uh, Roland uh, Lahook, an astrophysicist who works at a uh, CEA. He works at the CEA. Quote, there is no trend in biological evolution. The huge range of various morphologies observed on Earth renders any exobiological speculation improbable, at least for macroscopic complex life. End quote. Skeptical that humans would have much in common with extraterrestrial life forms, Lahook discussed, quote, our persistent anthropocentrism in our understanding and description of alien life, end quote, and how difficult it is for humans to imagine extraterrestrial intelligence radically different from ourselves. In short, and this is the end of the Forbes article, we're too self-obsessed to even imagine extraterrestrial life, let alone find and communicate with it. And if there's not going to be proof within our lifetimes, we're not much interested in looking. Is there intelligent life out there? Probably but we'll probably never find it. So basically the conclusions that Forbes, that Forbes is, is kind of pulling from this is, is there probably intelligent life out there? Uh, again, that sapient intelligent life. Sure. I, I agree with that. I think there is, I just don't think it's very common. And I also don't think that, you know, there's that much of it. Okay. I think that, that sapient life is a rarity animal life, other kind of complex multicellular organisms, single cell organisms, things like this. Sure. I've, I've, sky's the limit or even that that's a terrible phrase to use, <laughs> but, but there's almost no limit on that. Okay. But sapient life, that's a different story because we know how hard it was for it to happen on earth. And that's to say nothing of the absolutely perfect conditions and matters of what would appear to be chance on earth for something like a human being to even evolve or hell, even a dolphin. To, you know, say that, well, because of mathematics, you know, this coming together, blah, 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 you know, and the Drake equation and everything, you know, to say that somehow that can calculate that there should be billions and, you know, and all this different uh, sapient life out there. Oh, I mean, that's a fucking stretch. 
that's a stretch. And I mean, in fact, that's stretching the math so hard. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're going to stretch. Oh, sorry, I was going to make a terrible joke. It's just it, no way. That's so bad. So, but I want to go back to this uh, initial uh, or not initial, but this middle paragraph, because there's a comment here. And if this is, again, this is done by the uh, co-chair of the event itself. I wonder about this. Okay, so so let me read this this one sentence in particular here. It seems likely that extraterrestrials are imposing a galactic quarantine because they realize it would be culturally disruptive for us to learn about them. Okay, that right there, we have a huge problem. Now, that guy, the same guy, uh, Jean-Pierre Rospar, he goes on to talk about how, well, they we know how life uh, you know comes together. It should evolve the same way everywhere else. And, and of course, at the end of it, we had a guy, you know, also at the Medi conference who said, absolutely not. There is no consistency in how life evolves like that uh, towards, you know, towards what would be like humanity. Um, not to say that Rospar is the first person to suggest that. You can go back to... Uh, the son of Constantine Huygens, personal hero of mine, uh, but the, the son of Constantine Huygens, that being Christian Huygens, who he, uh, you know, he said, and this was hundreds of years ago, said that, well, you know, alien life could be, and this was very, I mean, he was, you know, in the Dutch Republic at the time, was this like uh, 18th, you know, 17th, 18th century, and you know, he was suggesting he wrote books about it. He said, yeah, he's like alien life could be wacky. I mean, and that was really far out for him to even be talking about life on other worlds. Okay. But he did. And he said it could be really wacky. He said, but actually probably it's probably just like us because you know, the way humans are, we're the fucking best. And <laughs> I mean, the hubris of that attitude is one thing, but I also think that, I mean, that's just, that's not very intellectually honest to, to even begin to believe that that's that, oh, you know, just, well, you know, good old fashioned intelligent life, no matter where it evolves, it's probably going to be bipedal, you know, have two hands and all. I mean, that, that, that's outrageous. And anybody, I think, and you know, you got to be careful when you say this sort of thing, right? It's like rational to some people's very relative term. Like any rational person, I think would, would say, well, mathematically it could be any combination of things. I mean, there's even on earth itself, there's questions of whether or not uh, cephalopods could be complete, could be conscious. They could be sapient life forms and octopus octopuses, right? That's, is that the pronounced the, the right way to say it? That's been up to some debate over the years, but you know, an octopus is as different from a human as just about any form of life I think could be. Uh, so, you know, to, to suggest that they have to look like humans to be sapient or that that's what they would do. Oh, that's outrageous in, in my opinion. And I, I know you want to be careful, like in any kind of scientific conversation, you want to go, Oh, that is outrageous. Uh, how dare you speak about this in the scientific institution? I mean, you don't want to get and fall into that kind of trap. Right. But really it is outrageous, but I want to get into the more outrageous statement being leveled here. But first off, I also want to get into, um, cause I, I love to get to any time you get the chance to talk about some of your favorite stuff, right? You do so like I've already mentioned star Trek. I love star Trek. Uh, the zoo hypothesis is not from the 1970s. The zoo hypothesis is significantly older, at least on the order of decades, at least. Okay. And, and that's just in the English language. Um, in fact, my favorite novel of all time, my favorite book of all time, uh, that being uh, star maker by Olaf Stapledon from 1938, very clearly lays out the zoo hypothesis where, I mean, it's fiction, but the zoo hypothesis is there that you have the, uh, the symbiote species, like where the ones like kind of the arachnid that attaches to the back of the head and all this, uh, in that, you know, they talk about how they leave planets alone. Um, 
you know, un- until they, they reach a certain, like this utopic stage, this utopia stage, this utopia level. So any pre utopic, uh, species, they, they don't touch. I mean, it kind of, speaking of Star Trek, it smacks of the prime directive in a way, doesn't it? You know, that you won't, uh, make contact with any pre-warp civilizations. Uh, granted, I think a lot of these people would probably go with the same Star Trek thing where Star Trek has like the Federation in it, right? They have what's called duck blinds which are basically, even though they're not allowed to have cloaking devices, I guess they're allowed to have something that makes these little observatories that they put on planets with these with these uh, uh, pre-warp cultures on them, and they like to spy on them, right? You see this in many episodes. It was also in the movie Star Trek Insurrection, uh, you know, where, where it was a major plot point. So a lot of these people would probably be like, oh, the aliens are already here, and they're watching us through the equivalent of a Federation duck blind, right, through their, their cloaked buildings or who knows what. But I say all this just to just to you know make it clear that science fiction has been way ahead of the curve of thinking about what life is like throughout the rest of the universe uh, way before scientists were on the game. And that's part of why I think science fiction is so important. We've talked about that in previous episodes. I'm not going to rehash that now. But science fiction is not just a fictional literary genre. It is a way of thinking. It is a tool. It is a logical and emotional tool, in my opinion, that you can use to wrap your head around the universe around you in general. Okay. Not just the universe, but even like the, you know, the small life around you, right. Within your own Dunbar number, you could, you know, you can use science fiction to understand what's going on around you or the latest tech that comes out. Right. So anyway, I want to talk about this galactic quarantine theory, because this one's a little bit new and I'm really troubled by this. So here it is from, uh, again, from the, the, uh, the co-chair, uh, of the workshop. And that is, Quote, it seems likely that extraterrestrials are imposing a galactic quarantine because they realize it would be culturally disruptive for us to learn about them. Oh, man. I mean, this just just puts that comment. And granted, we don't know how many people at the uh, SETI event or it's by Medi, but it's at the Cité. Sorry, Cité at the Cité in Paris. We don't know how many people at the event actually agree with that statement, but I hope it is very few, if none. That'd be even better because that is a very troubling perspective to think that, you know, somehow, I mean, the suggestion is, is that they are more intelligent than us because they're an interstellar species. It doesn't have to be that way that they're technically more intelligent, even though IQ is a problematic concept, but it doesn't have to be that way. But let's, let's just run. We'll, we'll go ahead. We'll give them that. We'll get that conceit. Okay. That maybe they're more intelligent. If they are not revealing themselves and they're actually quarantining the earth, Okay, kind of like in the Culture series by Ian M. Banks, uh, just a great, actually, anarchist science fiction uh, series, probably the most popular in history. And Amazon's making their little TV series out of it now, too. Um, In the Culture series, they do that, where the culture is this wildly advanced civilization in space, interstellar civilization. And they basically say, you know what, we got to let the Earth just do its thing. Um, because if they find out about us, it's just going to cause too much trouble or something like that. I mean, well, that's not exactly what they say, but that's what the Rose Barr here is is suggesting, that that's the way that they think. That, okay, you know, if we show up, if we knock on their door, you know, it's Day the Earth Stood Still, Day the Earth Stood Still, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, and we show up there and uh, as aliens and we start saying, hey, guess what? You're not alone in the universe, that it's going to be too culturally disruptive. Um, if that's true. Aliens are a bunch of fucking assholes. And I hope, because uh, I know that my show goes out on radio networks around the world. I hope that these signals go out to them and they fucking hear it. How dare you? You know, if, if that's your if that's your logic, and granted it's put into a very simple statement, 
But when you consider, even in recent history, even now, when you consider the religious and ideological frameworks and infrastructures that exist on this planet today that are responsible for offing millions of humans, if not more, throughout history and honestly at any given fucking moment. Okay, you want to say religion doesn't control wars and all this shit anymore? I mean, you know, and religion that that believes in, say, a God and that there aren't other aliens out there or blah, blah, blah. And we're doing God's will and we're a special species and all that stuff. But even though we're a special species under God, we have to get off by, you know, on record numbers uh, throughout the 20th and early 21st century. I mean, just look at George W. Bush. That asshat, I mean, he pretty much claimed that he was acting on orders from God. Right. Basing it on what? On like Isaiah 13. My point being that aliens could come down right now out of the sky and just put the whole kibosh on probably 80 percent of the faiths that have any kind of actual power and stroke in this world. And just throw them all into question. okay, and maybe put a stop to these actions that are being claimed in the name of the God of these very religions. Please, aliens, if I'm wrong and there are actually aliens nearby or they're already on Earth or whatever, fucking disrupt our culture now. Stop these wars. Stop all of it. Disrupt the fuck out of this culture because people are needlessly dying in the name of, 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 of something of, of beliefs in the name of within belief systems that, that, that say you don't even exist. So please prove them wrong. Come on down. That is that is disgusting. And if if it were true, if what Rosebar says is true, those aliens are the biggest pieces of fucking shit that the universe has ever seen. What the hell are they thinking? Letting this kind of bullshit go on, letting the amount of deaths and war and everything else that supposedly if they came down, they'd be culturally disruptive that they could fucking put a stop to. Unbelievable. I mean, this is the short sightedness. This is this is what kills me because this is the short sightedness of so many of these scientists. This is the short sightedness of a lot of people that, you know, like like want to think about these sorts of things. And look, people, I mean, and and it gets just as bad that way too, because it almost turns into religious belief. For some, it is religious belief. I mean, you have entire religions based around UFOs, basically, right? I mean, they're out there, including in France specifically. Uh there there's some. I mean, it kills me that they're basically claiming this is some kind of benevolent conspiracy. I mean, there's conspiracies around a lot of this kind of stuff anyway. Like, I'm reminded of uh, Reagan. He was, uh, I think he was speaking to the UN um, he, back in the 80s. President Reagan, you know, said, it's like, I can only imagine that if some alien threat came down from the stars, uh, how quickly humanity would unite. Well, you know what? Not that I want them to be a threat, but aliens, come on down and, and get huma- humanity united. You know, get humanity together here. Please. Again, this logic just doesn't hold up. It doesn't make sense. And supposedly these are some fucking top minds that are talking at this goddamn thing, but they don't get shit. Well, part of the reason they don't get shit is because they think, well, I mean, obviously, or I think it's obvious, they must believe in the concept of governments and power over structures and things like this, that, well, you know, sometimes, I mean, folks, we got to collect taxes. You know, we know it's theft. We know that in any other situation, it'd be dead wrong, but 
for the good of everybody, for the good of, you know, you want to give Vulcan on it for the good of the many instead of the one or the good of the many outweighing the needs of the one. Yet we got, we got to, we got to have government. We got to have taxes and all that. And, and that, you, boy, I mean, I've had these arguments too with like people who are far more controversial, like uh, uh, ancient astronaut theorists, right? Like Zachariah Sitchin, where he thinks that, you know, uh, uh, that we were uh, genetically altered apes, that humanity is genetically altered apes by the Anunnaki who came from a planet that whips into, uh, you know, our solar system every few thousand years called Nibiru. And he's like, well, the King Anu. And I, and, and I just wanted to stop him right there. And I love, I loved because unfortunately he passed away, uh, Anyway, I love Zachariah Sitchin. I really do. Consider him a friend. And I, and as soon as he would say King, I just wanted to go, whoa, 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 Zach, so, slow it down. You're telling me you have this wildly advanced civilization, extraterrestrial civilization. You have this wildly advanced interstellar civilization and they still have monarchies. What? <laughs> you know? Or, or this is, I mean, even in fiction, you get this a lot, right? Like the Thor movies, you know, or in the Marvel films, like you have all these, you know, crazily advanced civilizations like the, uh, you know, the Asgardians and so on. And, and like, they're still running under monarchies and all this other bullshit. And it's like, wait, wait, well, I guess maybe you have some kind of advanced technology, but you're sure as fuck not advanced, not socially. The individual is the measure of all things. Okay. Like this, I mean, I don't want to get lost in the weeds on a, you know, on an anarchist kind of, you know, argument within this, but bottom line being is that really, if this is like, well, you know, the, the alien government came down and said, well, you know, yeah, they're off in each other in record numbers down there on earth, but, um, you know, we would just be too disruptive if we showed up. So we're not going to do that. You know, I mean, like then they're not advanced. I guess it's other life out there, but they're as bad off as we are. So, I mean, I guess, you know, to wrap this up, because I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about it, but to wrap this up, if you think, you know, should we be reaching out to them? Should we be sending them a message? Let's hold off on that. Let's hold off on sending uh, extraterrestrial intelligence a message that we're ready to join the Galactic Club because we're not. I mean, you know, I suppose some people would say, well, but Brian, don't you think the prime directive is actually a cool idea? You said that in the past on Cybertech. Granted, that's science fiction. But regardless, like I said, science fiction is important. It's a funny mental framework to go through things. But other people have talked about how really the prime directive was just a story tool that it was meant to be broken at all times ethically. Uh, and Roddenberry always had that in mind. That's that's a whole other conversation. And again, we're we're kind of blending things here a little too much. But Here's the thing is that if you are, I mean, it's one thing where if you yourself are a person who are, say, you, you know, you think you're kind of above, above board on everybody here and you know, ethically how human beings should act between each other. Okay. Um, and you just, you know, don't want to get involved and, but the reason you don't want to get involved is not because you'd be culturally disruptive. Of course, maybe people would threaten your life for suggesting some of the very peaceful ideas, honestly, that we've espoused many times over the years on Sovereign Tech. Um, you know, but but basically, I mean, there's the answer is that you don't see the point. This is the difference is that, you know, one or two people that are, like I said, uh, you know, maybe a little more socially advanced, uh, they, they can't affect change. Right. I mean, it's not going to happen as to where. Yeah, Sure. 
you know, aliens showing up would be, I agree that it would be culturally disruptive. They would show up. Here's, here's the issue with the, the, the quarantine, a galactic quarantine theory though, is that, okay, they could show up and do something about it. And here's the difference with this idea and what gets espoused in Star Trek. The difference is, is that supposedly with quarantine, they are willfully keeping us from finding out about them. Like they are making it so that we can't, they are already involved in our cultural disrelevant. They are already disrupting the culture. So why not do it to the positive where people stop dying? That's the part where it just doesn't make any fucking sense. And, and it, and based on what Medi is trying to say here, I mean, I mean, I don't know if this guy speaks for them as an entire organization, though he is, you know, co-chair. I mean, this is where aliens come off like assholes. Just calling it straight. You know, if you are actively keeping people from finding out, I mean, again, you're already disrupting. So again, just come on down, disrupt it, put a stop to this stuff, make those religions meaningless, do all of that. Would people still figure out ways to adjust uh, for the belief in aliens and the belief in Christ or something like that? Yeah, probably. I mean, Catholics already do that, right? Like uh, the Pope already came out years, decades, over a decade ago, already came out and said, uh, you know, there's no reason to, to suggest that there couldn't be extraterrestrial life out there. Um, I mean, and there's other Christians that, that hold that that say right in the Bible, like in the book of Job, that it referenced some kind of galactic council and all that stuff. So would there be some mental gymnastics that would get them to believe in, uh, in, in alien life and make that compatible with Christianity or Judaism or, uh, Islam or something like that, even though Islam and Judaism, I would argue both of those also do the same thing where they already admit that there's intelligent life out there in, in, in some form or fashion. Sure. People probably would, but I bet it would put a stop to a whole shit ton of these wars pretty fast. President Reagan might not have, I mean, he was wrong about pretty much everything, but he might not have been wrong about that part. So anyway, uh, (laughs) this is just, I I mean, this bothers me when supposedly top minds, top scientists around the world get together and they so blatantly miss very real. And I would dare argue easy ethical issues, uh, you know, to bring to four and they just skip it. Of course, maybe somebody did bring, you know, bring this, uh, bring this up and they just didn't want to report on it. Cause they're like, oh shit, cats in the bag, cats out of the bag here. Fuck. I don't know. But either way, like the, the, this conversation, this, you know, zoo hypothesis or galactic quarantine. Um, if those things are true, then we have a real problem because it sure as fuck isn't for our own good. I'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. Woo. Can you get enough of the man of tomorrow? I didn't think so. Well, now you're going to get even more, along with some of the hottest hosts and podcasts around, because now Sovereign Tech has become an entire network. Zomia One, the most rebellious podcast network in the galaxy, with bleeding edge shows covering science, technology, and even pop culture. Podcasts like Sovereign Trek, bringing you the latest and greatest in everything Star Trek. TIE Fighter Renegades, a Star Wars podcast where the Man of Tomorrow and Robin Freebeard talk Star Wars like no other show out there. The Hard and Fast podcast where Metal is King and the latest album reviews and interviews with the greatest acts in hard rock and heavy metal happen. And you can even become a member of the Zomia One Underground and get access to thousands of hours of exclusive content and shows. And this isn't Patreon, baby. Oh no, this is all happening on the premier podcast platform, Podbean. 
So head over to Zomia1.com. That's Z-O-M-I-A-O-N-E.com. And become a part of the future with Zomia1. And become a member of the Zomia1 Underground. And while you're at it, download the Podbean app on iOS and Android. Be the future. Zomia1.com. It is time for Hack Sec, where we're going to tone down a little bit. <laughs> I got a little hot and bothered there. Uh, but anyway, you know, a great place to talk about this, to talk about the search for alien life and all this. In fact, I know because I've had conversations with uh, with listeners on this show that not being Sovereign Tech, but that being Free Talk Live, a Sovereign Tech sponsor. Go to freetalklive.com. It's an open phones call in show. Believe me, you can talk about pretty much anything. You're going to want to check it out. It's the number 27 talk show in America. How the hell could you go wrong? with <laughs> getting the opportunity to talk on the national stage like that. In fact, hell, it's listened to around the world. Freetalklive.com. You want to check it out. Seven nights a week, three hours a night. Can you believe that action? You got to do it. So check out freetalklive.com. Give it a listen. You're going to love it. I was a co-host on there for two years, and this subject came up many times. Bring it up again with them. Talk about it. And let's get, all right, but that's it for freetalklive.com. I thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get into, I want to talk, it's time for HackSec, where we talk issues of hacking and security. And I got something pretty cool, actually, to tell you about here. And, well, you know what, before I do that, I'm going to call an audible right here, okay? Uh, and I don't mean the app, and I, I sure as hell don't mean sports ball. But uh, <laughs> I was, um, this surprised me. I shared this on Twitter, and I couldn't believe it's from Grammys.com. And, and I was half tempted, and I mean as in the Grammys, like music. I was half tempted to talk about this uh, or to read a story from Grammys.com, which I never thought I would do on Sovereign Tech because fuck the Grammys. I mean, the way they treat metal and hard rock is just fucking outrageous. Uh, But they were covering, of course, they're not the only ones. Pretty much every tech news source was covering this. And so I'm going to talk about just for a second before we get into some genuinely cool shit uh, going or that's that's out there or one thing's out there. The other thing is coming, which I think is uh, fascinating. But anyway, and this is kind of related, actually, MySpace, (laughs) of all fucking things, MySpace. Now, ironically, so I talked about, and I know what you're thinking. A lot of you are thinking, wait a minute, MySpace is still out there. It is. Uh, In fact, just a few years ago, in fact, this was around when Sovereign Tech started back in 2012, Um, like I got a beta invite to join the new MySpace because Justin Timberlake ended up buying it. That has bearing. We'll talk about this in a second. It's still been going on. It's still been, you know, a a, a thing uh, to this point. And Justin Timberlake ended up buying it. Okay, this is back in like 2012, 20, well, 2013, I think. And I I actually talked about it then. And I was like, well, you know, if you really want to give it a shot, I mean, it's better than being on Facebook. Even then, I was, you know, kind of understanding that Facebook was shit. Of course, I think everybody's known for a long time that Facebook is shit. It's just the network effect and people end up sticking with it. Whatever. We might get into more Facebook shit in a little bit here. But MySpace, apparently they were upgrading their servers. Fairly standard process. People do this all the time. I've helped people do this. I've helped clients do this sort of thing. Not difficult really at all. You know, I mean, it's very run of the mill in my opinion, even when it's something at the scale of potentially what MySpace was at. I can't, in principle, it might not be that different. 
maybe there's some technical challenges that they have very specific hardware. Uh, Fuck. I don't know. You know, maybe they're running some good old classic spark stuff. I, I, you know, I, I can't say, or at least I haven't been presented with the, you know, whatever's going on there. But what happened just this past week in March of 2019, they were doing the server upgrade and apparently they fucked it up and all day, as I understand it, some people are reporting just the music is gone, which even that, it's important to bring up, but all data from MySpace from the year 2015 back to 2003 is gone. It's just gone. Like, I mean, and, and, and it's never, as far as we understand it, it's more or less never coming back. And I don't think internet.org was keeping an eye on it. You know, the, the inner, or I'm sorry, not the internet.org, but the internet archive, internet.org is Facebook, right? Um, the internet archive was not keeping an eye or, you know, I doubt was keeping an eye on it necessarily, but all of that is gone. Now you got to understand MySpace was very much, I mean, it was in its day, it was like YouTube and Facebook wrapped into one where it was a social media site, but then also it was where a lot of independent artists were, you know, making their big breaks, right? Like, in fact, it wasn't like Hollywood Undead. Weren't they originally like a MySpace band? And then they end up, ended up kind of becoming a thing. I could be wrong about that, but I know there's quite a few that 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 has happened with. It was the premier place for musicians, certainly from 2003 to, say, I don't know, 2008, 2007, 2008, something like that. That's a good five years. I mean, you know, and you think how many people were jumping on that. I mean, that's a lot of music gone. And now it is completely gone. Now, I'll tell you the first thing, and I'm about ready to do a mic drop right here on this. Here's the real solution to this problem. If you're wondering, well, don't just complain about what happened with MySpace. Then why don't you do something about it? Okay. Physical media. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> All it needs, two words. Physical fucking media. We've talked about this plenty of times. Hell, even Facebook knows to do this because what does Facebook do all of their server backups with when it's not data that's like required to be accessed uh, instantaneously? You know, more recent data. What do they do? They have Facebook has the largest Blu-ray collection on the planet because they store all that old data on Blu-rays. That's 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 their backup plan. They know they they Facebook knows what to do, how to back this shit up. Why MySpace wouldn't do it, who the hell knows? But regardless, physical media, you know, I mean, look, I, I like having all my music on a hard drive too. I, you know, messing with CDs, I get it. It's a pain in the ass and I sure as hell wouldn't do it while I'm in the gym. But you get my point, right? I mean, <laughs> CDs, you know, having your music on CDs or at the very least these artists that were on there, that were on MySpace, it would have done them well to perhaps have made, I mean, hopefully they saved their music, but who knows? Um, you know, hopefully they made some CDs, but who knows for all intents and purposes, all of that data is now gone. Now I want to, I want to wax conspiratorial with you here for a second, because I could almost believe first off, sure. Justin Timberlake buys MySpace out, tries to relaunch. It doesn't exactly take off. I'm sure the way he hoped, uh, obviously, you know, he wanted it to be the next Facebook and it did sure as fuck didn't become that didn't even become the next Twitter. I could believe that MySpace was becoming a bit of a problem, a, a money sink and time sink. So you got to find some way to make money off of it, right? I wonder more. Here's what I wonder. I don't know what exactly the terms of service were for artists 
that would put their music on MySpace. But I wonder if that actually, and I don't know why I didn't think about this back when Justin Timberlake originally bought MySpace. I wonder if there's some way that he actually gets to be the rights holder of that music, or if he doesn't get to be the rights holder of that music, if they didn't actually lose all of that data from 2003 to 2015 this past week, but there's no longer a record of all of that music. And effectively, Justin Timberlake just got one of the largest uh, new music collections in the world for him to pull for him to pull, you know, to pull from for maybe his. uh, I'm sure he has a record company or he deals with a record company, but a record company could actually pull from, you know, all this music. And then, you know, some asshat can come out and say, oh, well, actually, that was my song. I wrote that back in such and such a time. Right. And I posted on MySpace. And then the judge says, well, show it to me on MySpace. And then Justin Timberlake says, you know, well, fuck, sorry. From 2003 to 2015, we have no data on what was on MySpace. So it's his word against mine. And who are you going to trust? Well, I don't know that the judge is going to trust Justin Timberlake. I sure as fuck wouldn't. But who's going to have the better lawyers? Probably Justin Timberlake. So I, you know, to get conspiratorial on you, I wonder. I wonder if this data loss is actually... you know, a data boon, a music boon, new music and like new notes and all this stuff for the music industry, you know, the art, you know, the big music companies, right. For them to have a whole new catalog within which to pull from and to have your next, I I don't know, Iggy Azalea or whoever the fuck that they want to create and put out there in front of you with all new music that, um, you know, that, that people wrote back in 2003 or something like that. And they just kind of spice it up. So I'm getting kind of conspiratorial. I have no real evidence for this other than it's a theory and that's all that I've got. And it's a fun one. So I thought I'd put it out there, but anyway, let's talk about some more. Le- I don't know. I hate using the word legit. I find myself using it way too much, uh, cause fuck legality, but you know, let's let's talk about something that's actually useful because MySpace arguably never was. I mean, unless you launched your career on there. I mean, hey, good for you. Uh, you know, so many years ago. And if you're still around rocking it, wow. I mean, like get in touch with me because I I have a podcast I would like to have you on. <laughs> it is called the Hard and Fast Podcast, and it's all about music, hard rock, heavy metal. But even if you're some other kind of artist and you made it on on MySpace and you're listening to the sound of my voice, because I know there's thousands and thousands of you out there, you get in touch with me, BBS at SovereignTech.com. I will give you a premier I I'll, I will get you on that show, I promise. Uh, anyway, and, but you got to have, you still have to have your music. You still have to have your music. All right. Cause I, I want to play some of it. God damn it. All right. Anyway. So, uh, or I actually, I should know who you are, right? Because you made it. So, okay. Uh, moving on, let's talk about some things. So first thing is that, uh, something else I noticed was private internet access, who is actually the VPN company, uh, that I've been using for quite some time. Um, they're not the only game in town as far as ones that I recommend, but they're definitely one of the ones that I recommend and I use them. Um, and they are coming out with, uh, I thought this was pretty interesting. They, they have, and you can go right to the website. It's private storage.io. Now this is not launched yet. Okay. But their basic ideas is they want to create a really solid open source, proper cryptography, you know, encrypted, 
uh, cloud storage service that's where it's all done right. Client-side encryption, right, uh, and authentication that doesn't require an account, so you don't even have to make an account so you can be anonymous. I don't know if they necessarily want to use the term anonymous because that comes with, well, speaking of legit, it comes with legal concerns when you use the word anonymous in official documentation. Um, and it can work across devices. Uh, I mean, and I mean, it, it has all the right moves. And of course, it has a desktop client, mobile client, all that. Uh, and they claim that there's no data or vendor lock in. So this would be completely open source software that might be able to port or you might even be able to self host it. I'm not exactly sure. But they're doing it in conjunction with a company called Least Authority. And Least Authority is, they were already kind of trying this. Okay, but now, you know, private Internet access, they're just going to bake in their technology, I assume. And I mean, that'd be well, they mentioned a couple of the technologies they're using. They're, they're using Tahoe LAFS uh, and Magic Wormhole. So which both of those are very nice things to, you know, to, to, to add into this mix, uh, especially Magic Wormhole. So because that allows for the handshake between devices where, you know, where you can work out the credentials between devices. So anyway, this is doing it right. It's something to look out for. And, you know, once it's fully released, um, I would like to do a full review of it because cloud storage, you, you know, I mean, we talk about like, especially on the Wednesday Q and A's for the Zomi one underground, we talk a lot about setting up a NAS and having your own cloud and everything. Um, that's not for everyone. I mean, I think it should be, but I understand that it's not exactly for everyone. And if it's not for you, then maybe privatestorage.io will be the thing for you. But it's not out yet, but we'll look into it. But something else I want you to check out, because a lot of people, like, uh, what is it, Firefox's uh, Send, right, which we reviewed back when it was originally in beta. That was about a year and a half ago or so. Uh, I recommended that. I thought it worked beautifully. Um, and it's still, it, it finally came out of beta, and they upped the amount, the, the size of the file that you can send. Originally, I think it was like under one one gig it had to be now it can be 2.5 gig uh which is interesting because isn't that basically the limit more or less the limit of um a fat 32 on hard drives I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it but i'd have to look into that more um anyway but another uh technology like that where send.firefox.com allows you to actually you know just to just to send you know, you can upload a file, you go to the website, you put the file up on there and keep it within the file size that you're sending. And you can just send a link to somebody and it will, you know, send it off uh, to them. Now, there's another version of this that's been around for a little while, and that's called OnionShare. Now, they have gone to version two, OnionShare 2, uh, which is interesting because OnionShare was one of the things that I think Cashmere Hill was trying to use during her, like, getting rid of the tech giants month that she went through that we covered uh, in a recent episode of, of Sovereign Tech. And she had an issue where she couldn't even really use OnionShare because at some point, I, I think there was, like, even to in, to get the, the download for, because it's software, it's not just a website that you go to, even though the website for OnionShare.org link is in the show notes. Um, like was hosted on AWS or something like that. I forget exactly what challenge she ran into, but it's interesting that Onion Share 2 gets released just after uh, really that, that whole story uh, comes out. Now, Onion Share basically works like, like Firefox Send, where it can, you know, you can upload a file, and I don't think there's actually a file limit because uh, I, I went with some pretty big ones uh, on this. But you can send any file and it sends it automatically over Tor and you don't have to have Tor installed um, on your, you know, like say you're using it on a Windows machine, which, you know, of course you should be using Linux, but okay. Say you're using it on, on a Windows machine or Mac OS. 
you don't have to have Tor installed. It'll come in the entire package that you download, be it the XE or whatever, uh, that you download for OnionShare or for OnionShare 2 specifically here. And they're using the next generation dot onion addresses, which is pretty nice. There's a lot of really slick features in this, but this is probably one of the best ways, if not the best way to send files and large files. If you want to anonymously, um, they really, really have this worked out very nicely. Again, it is something you install. It's not just done through a web browser and you can, you know, you pick the file and then you can send people the link address. The thing is, is that even though you don't have to have Tor installed to send the files, it is using .onion addresses to, like, you would basically send somebody a link, but the link, because it's through Tor, is going to be a .onion address. When you send somebody that link, they're going to be needing to use the Tor browser to access the file. So... That might be a challenge for some, but as we've talked about actually in 2018, when the new director took over at the Tor project, she was basically saying that, well, you know, we want everybody using, uh, you know, we want everybody jumping on Tor now. We want everybody using the, the Tor browser and so on. So if this is one of those things that, you know, ends up where it gets more people using Tor on the regular then great. You know, I mean, I, I think that that's a win across the board. If anything, it just, if it kind of forces people to use the Tor browser more, that's dynamite too. But that's sort of the one limitation uh, with this. But there are a lot of, make sure if you decide to use this, that you go in the settings because there's a lot of things that you can configure. Like actually, and this is really cool. This is a nice little feature for sharing is that you can set where uh, it can be instead of randomizing the address with every file that you want to send, you can have one set address where people can download and access various files and it can be a persistent address. That way, like say you're working with somebody, I don't know, say you're doing a podcast with someone, right? And you want to share files between each other or share documents or something like that. You could very easily share the updated documents or the updated files, the artwork, whatever you're doing. You could very easily share that with one address that never has to change. And the person can just look at that persistent address every time they, uh, you know, they need to download the updated version or a new file or whatever that happens to be. I mean, that's, that's really, really slick. Um, so this is really my recommended way to go. And that's why I'm glad to talk about it. This is really my recommended way to go as far as, you know, if you want to share files, I mean, Firefox send works very well. Um, and it tries to bake in some degree of encryption and anonymity, but, you know, use going over Tor and also, like I said, kind of the added benefit of maybe forcing people to use the Tor browser more or to use just the Tor network in general, uh, I think is a damned fine thing. You know, I mean, just a wonderful thing. I wasn't able to add this on to Tails. I tried adding this on to Tails OS uh, as a persistent uh, you know, like, cause with tails OS, if you set up persistent storage on it, which tails OS is the Tor operating system or basically the operating system that runs everything through Tor based on uh, Debian. But I tried setting it up as a, as a, you know, an app that can load onto the persistent storage for tails and I couldn't get it to stay open, but I don't know what exactly the issue is there, but I mean, I would love it if, in fact, maybe I'll contact somebody at the Tor project. I would love it if they made Onion Share 2 a part of Tales OS. That needs to be a thing. That way there's even like, I mean, that could be really cool because then you have a great way to send people files right through Tales. 
You know, I mean, and as far as, you know, people that use tales, I mean, you have activists, you know, all around the world that use tales, journalists, I mean, the people that really need it, uh, this would be a fantastic tool for them to be able to do. So I don't know if maybe there was something wrong with my installation. I'm not, you know, I mean, even the Golden Stallion fucks up here and there, baby, but well, well, I'll find out. That's something I'm going to look into, but it wasn't something I could get an answer now, but I wanted to let people know about it. In fact, uh, actually, a Sovereign Tech listener ended up sending this to me on Twitter, uh, you know, making sure I knew about Onion Share 2. I mean, I, I used Onion Share 1, and we actually talked about it. We reviewed it uh, for a tool of the week, and boy, that was some years ago. Uh, but this is really exciting that, that Onion Share 2 uh, is out there, and... Yeah, give it a, I mean, give it an install. I think it's rock solid. Uh, I, I really, I love what I see. So anyway, you know, this was, I ended up going a little long on this episode with a couple of subjects I was going to talk about. Maybe I'll save it for next week because I think we might have a very special episode coming up next week. But if not, we'll still talk about it anyway. I was going to talk about it. It appears that Facebook coin or what I infamously called years ago what i called instead of face bucks i ended up calling it face fucks is finally going to be coming out uh it looks like in the italian version of the facebook app for android it showed up it looked like there was some kind of facebook coin kind of looked like bitcoin but it wasn't i want to get talking about that but we ended up going along with one of the subjects here and so you know that happens that's the beauty of sovereign is that we can you know i can shake things up however i want it's my fucking show god damn it anyway Exciting things coming up for the show, and of course, exciting things coming up for the Zomia One Underground and the Zomia One Network overall. If you want to join that, if you haven't yet, go to ZomiaOne.com and jump on all of it. Woo! Anyway, I will see all of you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution. 